With rapid advancements in healthcare, technology, and practice, PO leaders must listen, respond, work together, and use a systematic approach to anticipate future needs and ensure success for the profession and its patients. Since 1970, PO professional organizations have periodically held education summits and strategic planning meetings, bringing practicing clinicians and educators together to discuss current events and to make recommendations for the future of PO education. Acknowledgement of the ongoing challenges in PO with an understanding of the historical context may enhance decision making to further advance the PO profession. Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to episode 21 of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, editor in chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guests today are Ms. Cheryl Sachs, MSPO, CPO, and Dr. Joshua Ute, EDD, MED, CPO, LPO. Ms. Sachs is a dedicated orthodox prosthetist from Maryland. She's a proud graduate of the University of Maryland, where she earned a dual degree in communication and kinesiological sciences. She attended the P&O program at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where she earned her Master of Science in Prosthetics and Orthotics, which has laid the groundwork for her professional trajectory, both as a clinician and an advocate. Ms. Sachs' professional path has been intertwined with Datemar, Inc., where she completed her residency and now works as a certified prosthetist orthodist. Beyond her clinical role, Ms. Sachs' heart lies in mentoring and advocacy. Taking on mentorship roles within the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists Mentoring Program and for aspiring professionals in residencies reflects her commitment to fostering learning and growth in others. Ms. Sachs also serves as a member of the Government Relations Committee of the American Orthotic and Prosthetic Association, and she's helping to lead the grassroots initiative so everybody can move in Maryland. Additionally, her engagement with the National Commission on Orthotic and Prosthetic Education, known as ENCO, is rooted in a genuine desire to guide education and training in the field. From starting as a regional residency liaison to presently being a part of the ENCO Board's Executive Committee, Ms. Sachs' contributions to the field extend beyond her patients to those across the country. She is committed to helping the field of ONP grow and thrive in the ever-changing healthcare environment. Her co-author, Dr. Ute, is an orthodist prosthetist who started his career by attending UT Southwestern's P&O program in Dallas in the late 1990s. His early career consisted of pediatric and adult ONP practice with experience in both institutional and private settings. He credits professional mentorship and familiar support for his appreciation of the educational processes and the enormous potential education can unlock. Armed with a master's degree in education, he became a full-time ONP educator in 2012 as a founding faculty member of the ONP program at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Over the next decade, Dr. Ute was inspired by the transformation repeatedly witnessed as students became graduates, graduates became certified, and young professionals became motivational leaders in their own right. Further exploration of the learning process led to a doctorate of education last year with special emphasis on training clinicians 
and health science experts to become effective educators too. Presently, Dr. Ute is practicing at Scottish Rite for Children in Dallas, where mentoring newcomers maintains special status alongside providing excellent pediatric ONP clinical services. He has a specific interest in exploring and preserving all aspects of the history and culture of our field, as well as the extraordinary people who dedicate their energies to defining it today. Today, we will be discussing a recent article that Ms. Sachs and Dr. Ute published in JPO entitled, Recurring Themes in Prosthetic and Orthotic Education, a Narrative Review of Prosthetics and Orthotic Education Summit Meetings. Welcome to the podcast, Cheryl and Josh. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's an honor to be a part of the podcast. Well, I'm anxious to talk about your topic, and let's get right into it. Why does this particular topic interest you? So I think that, as you kind of heard in each of our bios, we both care a lot about education in this field, especially. And we both had an interest in kind of understanding where the field was, where we are now, and how the field needs to evolve and change in order to thrive in the current healthcare environment that we're experiencing that has really changed a lot, not just because of the pandemic, but over the past 10 to 15 years as well. And as an educator, I've always been interested in um, human performance and human achievement. So combined with my appreciation of history, learning how education has evolved over the last well, century really was an opportunity I, I couldn't wait to jump on. I would agree. There's, it seems like there's been a lot of changes in the field in the last decade or so, a lot of changes to come from what we're hearing. So what was the motivation for this particular project? So it would be amiss to not mention, we actually did have a third author who unfortunately was unable to join us today. Um, but Sue Spalding was actually the, I'd say, the master behind the idea for this article. We all first met up and Sue had reached out to Josh and myself about two years ago looking and the idea that she had kind of proposed to us was, "Do you, are you interested in this, right? Is we really want to take a look at how education has evolved in the U.S., education and OMP. And the idea behind this was that we knew that there was going to be an education summit that NCOPE was going to hold in 2023. And Sue, as the chair of the NCOPE board, at the time, or she serves as the current chair, wanted to look at how OMP education had evolved in order to get more information to ensure that the education summit for 2023 was going to address the current needs of the field and figured that looking retrospectively at what was done at previous summits and how some of those ideas were implemented um, was kind of what led to the motivation for this project, really to give us some insight behind some of the proposed initiatives. And I like what you said, Cheryl, that the incentive or the origin of this project was two years ago. So just to give our listeners some idea that a project like this doesn't just take a few months, it can often take a couple of years between the time that you have your initial discussions and by the time the publication actually comes out. So what was the purpose of your narrative review? So besides initial curiosity and appreciation of what led to how things are today, the purpose is formally to track advancements of and perceived challenges to P&O education through a review of the education summit reports, as well as some of the other influential meetings that have occurred since about 1970. And tracing the narrative arc 
of how leadership across the profession defines itself and, and prepares incoming members for the future is, again, an opportunity we couldn't pass up. So it sounds like a rather ambitious project from the start. So what did you expect or hope to find through this review? I think the exciting thing is that we all went into it with a really open mind. We weren't really sure what we were going to come across or what we were going to learn. I know that even though I have a passion with education, I, coming into this project, really didn't know enough of where this field had been before I really became a part of it. When I completed my master's program at the time, Georgia Tech was the only accredited program. University of Pittsburgh, I think, had just submitted to become a master's program, but I was right kind of in that transition between the certificate and master's programs. So I didn't know a lot of what was before me, and I had seen what had come since then. So I didn't really know what to expect, but I was excited to really see how we had gotten to where we were in hopes that it would kind of guide us as to the direction that the field really could go and should go in order to thrive. I want to echo Cheryl's sentiments in my own personal trajectory going to school in the 90s when residencies were still a fairly new requirement. Um, there was still some concern if there would be enough residency sites for all the graduates for training and get certified. And seeing that it was in progress when I was coming in helped me appreciate that it's a constantly moving target. The profession, like so many others, strives to reinvent itself over time as needs change for the patients and people that make it up. So I find it quite inspiring. So whereas I got a bachelor's degree in ONP, and then later on I wanted to teach, I needed a master's degree, but because of the, the timing, the master's degree could have been at anything. And the thought that I could contribute something to the evolution of education was, again, thoroughly inspiring. So tell me a little bit about the process for this investigation. And specifically, I wanted to know who performed the review of the Piano Education Summit and Strategic Planning Meeting Reports. Great question. I want to give credit to Sue Spaulding, whose idea it was to apply the concept of a formal rating scale called the Scale for the Assessment of Narrative Review Articles, or SANRA. This way, we ensure all criteria were included in the narrative review as were relevant, including the importance for readership, purpose of the review, literature search, key statements, uh, appropriate level of evidence, and appropriate presentation of data. Um, much of the reporting that we accessed was from public sources. Some, while not necessarily a secret, was not necessarily published either. So we got content from the executive director of NCOPE, uh, Robin Seabrook, and some from the executive director of ABC, Kathy Carter. And so with that trove of information, we were able to synthesize it and find the narrative arc going back to the 70s and even referencing what happened before then. All three authors contributed equally and independently. We synthesized our findings as a group after deriving them individually. We essentially started with making our own tables and answering about half a dozen questions for each of the summits, including what were the intentions of the authors, what was the prescribed and suggested recommendations following the efforts, what core challenges were recognized, who was involved, what the meeting format was, and of course, any other um, observations therein. 
Very nice. To me, it sounds like a tremendous amount of work for everyone involved. So I admire you for delving in and extracting all of this key information. So how many reports did you end up reviewing for this project? So we ended up reviewing a total of nine reports. Initially, we started just with the education summits and then realized that there were some other meetings that had taken place in between some of the summits that were relevant to what we were addressing. So within the nine reports, uh, five of them were education summits. There was one task force report, and this was a task force that was put together as a direct result of some outcomes from the 1990 education summit. And there were also three strategic planning meetings that we reviewed as well as part of this project. And so what were some of the primary findings of your investigation? So within the article, we were able to synthesize the findings through a series of bullet points per each of the nine documents representing each of these nine major events. It's summarized in table two of our document. So we were able to boil things down to the main purpose of each meeting, perceived challenges at the time, and of course, the attendees. Of course, while we found much more detail than we could possibly cover in a single podcast, we found some recurring themes that were not a surprise, but uh, perhaps a little unexpected. And that boiled down to the title of our article titled Recurring Themes in P&O Education. So starting in 1970, the goal was to bring together the representatives from P&O professional organizations across the country. Though there were 18 people there at the first Ponte Vedra meeting in Florida in 1970, they identified workforce shortages, sustainability of P&O education, and cost of education to students as some of the main challenges of the time. Six years later, also at Ponte Vedra, there were 16 people in attendance, only four of whom were at the first one. They again identified workforce shortages, sustainability of O&P education, continuing education, and relationship of O&P to engineering and rehabilitation engineering in particular as some primary needs of the day. So from there was a little few more years before the next summit meeting happened in 1990 in Phoenix. And between that meeting in 1990 and the following one in 1991, the formation of ENCOPE resulted, which is then an independent commission to oversee maintaining accreditation standards and for educational programs and eventually residencies as the primary goal. And the trajectory from there is, of course, more workforce development, greater training standards. 2006 saw the beginning of the conversation and the commitment to transfer initial training to a master's degree. And uh, by 2009, the goal was set to have the goal of getting all programs for practitioners to master's degree levels and therefore phase out the bachelor's training program. And the trajectory continued with more emphasis in 2015's summit meeting where we had 51 representatives gather in Tampa, Florida to seriously reconsider what the division of labor is between practitioners, assistants, and technicians. One of the things I'd like to add to what Josh was saying is what was really interesting with some of these recurring themes is obviously the climate of the country changed over the course of all of those years, but some of the same themes were still popping up at each of these education summits, at each of these strategic planning meetings. And 
it was really cool from my perspective, at least as we were reading these reports, to see how items that were proposed at one meeting, whether they were or were not addressed in the time between that meeting and the next. And one of the things I would like to mention, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, the education summits are typically held about every five years, or they were supposed to be after the 2015 summit, because we were noticing that when there were such long gaps in between the meetings, there was a lot that was getting lost and there were a lot of items that weren't necessarily being followed up on. But as everyone knows, 2020 threw a little bit of a curveball for everyone. So we were excited to really hit the ground running again in 2023. But again, some of these recurring themes that I think those who are involved in practice, either as clinicians, business owners, technicians, assistants, or even our allied health partners might even see that the themes that were seen even starting in the 70s are still current today. And we were able to really narrow those down to workforce shortages, the continued development and oversight of uniform recognized national academic standards, the sustainability of P&O academic programs, the development and oversight of uniform recognized national residency standards, communication with O&P users, as well as community partners, and data collection and usage. Uh, and I think that last one, the data collection and usage is very interesting just because it's not something that you would really think about in the 70s or even I'd say in the early 1990s, but it was something that was reported at these meetings and whether or not enough has been done with some of the data that's been collected or hasn't been collected, I think is up for further discussion. But seeing that this was something that was at least recognized throughout the course of these years, I found to be very interesting. I would agree. I mean, uh, whenever I, I read through your paper, first of all, I really enjoyed the summary you provided in Table 2. I thought it was excellent. But I was surprised that some of these topics kept coming up time after time and that they're still relevant, many of which are still relevant today. Now, I was also intrigued to learn that many initiatives in piano education were identified and discussed years before they were actually implemented. And I guess I'm thinking specifically about the advocacy for advanced degree programs in PO for the purpose of improving access to research funding, improving control and ownership over the field, and increasing the credibility of practitioners. And we're still having these discussions today. Would you care to comment on some of these topics? Sure. Again, I think that one of the things that we've noticed in this field is we want to make sure we get it right. And in our narrative, we really discuss how our field really came to be what it is today. Um, and we really started, again, during the Civil War, working alongside of surgeons. And our work has changed so much since that time. I think that no one would disagree with that statement. So there's a lot that we're still almost learning how to do, and we want to make sure that we get it right. So I think that with some of the advocacy efforts that AOBA has led, with clinician notes now being recognized as part of the medical record, I think is something that was fantastic when that was implemented a few years ago. And again, long time overdue. But I think there is still a lot more we can do, but making sure that the field as a whole can buy into what is being recommended is really important. I think that our field is very small and having a unified front on some of these topics as much as possible 
is important and even being creative and thinking outside the box, for example, for improving access to those research funds. Uh, it's something where there's a ton of research that we would love to have in the field and figuring out how to get that funding. There are a lot of individuals who are qualified to complete that research. So I think it's, again, just maybe lots of moving pieces and really wanting to make sure that the efforts and time that a lot of individuals are even volunteering is really being used in a manner that makes sense. I would like to add that even if there's a lot of agreement among members of a relatively small profession like ONP, change still takes time. And that's what we've seen over the years. As there's been repetition and recurring themes from one summit to the next that have been years or you know decades apart, that was motivational for us as the new summit, the summit that just took place in 2023 was being planned. We wanted to ensure we were standing on the shoulders of the giants that had come before us and not saying, okay, everyone, let's start over with a blank sheet of paper. What What is it that we think is best? So we wanted to ensure that we took all the progress possible and started at where they left off with their detailed recommendations as they applied today. And that influenced a great deal of effort that went into planning for the 2023 summit so that we weren't starting again from scratch. I think that's an excellent philosophy. I mean, essentially going with some of the momentum that has been built from these previous summits and task force meetings and seeing can they be addressed, uh, you know, have things changed enough in the field that we can provide new solutions here. Now, one of the major challenges of priorities that stuck with me after reading your article was with respect to communication, both within and outside of the profession. Would you please elaborate on this point a bit more? Sure. So I think that when it comes to communication, the challenges that we see within the OMP field, it's not unique to our field. I think that it's something that is a huge challenge in healthcare in general, whether it's communications between physicians and their support staff, communications between staff and patients, communications with insurance companies so they understand why we're doing what we're doing. I think that that's something that is a problem in healthcare in general. It's something that I'd love to help change. And communication in the field there is certainly room for improvement. And that was something that was even discussed at the education summit that was held in August this year. And it's something that I think anyone, again, would say is important to the success of the field, to the success of patients, and that the more that we can teach in the schools, that communication within the office and with the care team is important, I think the better off we'll be for the future. I once heard someone describe the core education tenant of medical education as communication. He was able to boil down medical education into one word, which is communication. And that's not unique to medicine. And certainly we're, we're connected to healthcare in ONP. And so communication is key. It's critical to all professions, not just ONP. And so learning what that means, learning how to do that more efficiently across all stakeholders of our profession is important. It's, it's critical. It's the very foundation of a profession. So 
over the years, we find that the number of participants basically pulled from the first one to the more recent ones. And we're including a greater diversity of kinds of individuals who attend these conferences and are recognized as having a stake, whether it's practitioners, technicians and assistants, whether it's business owners, educators, administrators, association executives, uh, rehabilitation engineers, and therapists of all kinds, and of course, other academics. The conversation's been growing and broadening and, and really becoming more impactful. I think the other thing also, um, just add to what Josh was saying, one of the things that we have now that we didn't necessarily have even 10, 15 years ago are some pretty significant technological advancements. There's a lot of improvements with electronic medical record systems where you're able to access patients' medical records and coordinate with a care team that doesn't involve sending a letter or trying to get someone on the phone. I think it's also going to be interesting to see how, I know a hot topic right now is AI, this artificial intelligence, and how things along those lines will really affect communication within our field. The other thing with communication is we saw a lot of virtual communication really grow. I think the pandemic really kind of pushed that forward, but we're thinking about ways to communicate that we hadn't previously. And I think that that can have quite a profound impact on education and OMP as a whole. Excellent points about communication. I'm glad that this issue came up in your paper. Were there any unanticipated surprises in your findings? And if so, can you explain them? The biggest unanticipated finding was the repeating or recurring themes across all these summits going back to the very beginning. We could read the findings from some of the earlier summits and as a generality, explain that they are consistent and applicable today. For example, workforce shortages, and also, as Cheryl mentioned earlier, continuous development and oversight of uniform recognized standards, sustainability of O&P programs. I think that takes on even more urgency as we've seen a couple of technical training programs disappear and the shaky ground on which some of our practitioner programs have been recognized is, is a challenge. And also communication, as we've said, and data collection and usage. So those recurring themes really defined the trend over the last half century or more. Did you encounter any notable problems in the course of your study? And if so, what would you have done differently? It's a good question. I wouldn't say that we really did encounter any notable problems um, over the course of the study. Uh, but as I might have mentioned this earlier, initially we did start with just the proceedings from the education summits. And then we really found that we needed to fill the gaps of time. And that was when we added the reports from the strategic planning meetings as well as that task force report. So I wouldn't necessarily say that that was a problem, but it was something that we recognized over the course of just reviewing the summits themselves. And I think looking at those items and then including that as part of this report was very beneficial. So as we start wrapping things up here, what do you feel like are the main takeaways of your investigation? I think um, a primary recommendation that we came up with was that the profession has the opportunity as we were planning to come together for the summit that occurred just a few weeks ago to build on some of these discussions from the past and really start to move forward on some of these long-term challenges that have been part of our profession for, for decades. The use of a systematic approach could map patterns and educational challenges 
to facilitate and guide committee work in the future, beginning with the summit and, of course, continuing on thereafter. We want to make sure to capitalize on rapid advances in technology that are continuing, as we said, with artificial intelligence and others, as well as capitalizing on crowdsourced solutions because the ideas are out there. We want to make sure and capture those moving forward. It's important to continue to bridge the gap between academic programs and their community partners, including practitioners, paraprofessionals, patients, payers, and associated uh, healthcare colleagues that we partner with for the better care of our own patients. There's a lot that's been done, and I think we need to recognize that, but there's also a lot that still can be done. And the students that are entering schools, some might even say very different than it used to be. Uh, a lot of students are coming right out of college and entering master's programs as opposed to P&O potentially being a second career. Or again, just with the change to the master's programs in general, the students are different than what they were before and the world is different than what it used to be. So I think recognizing that there is a lot of work to be done, but we should be proud of where we are, but not be complacent. And I like to end every podcast by asking my guests if you would like to acknowledge any funding that you received to conduct this study. There was no funding in conjunction with this study. This was done out of our interests and in our spare time while we carried on our other paid professional obligations. And to echo Josh, a lot of time went into reading the reports and then ultimately generating this review, but none of it could have been done without the help from Sue Spaulding, again, who really spearheaded this project, as well as the information from both Robin Seabrook and Kathy Carter. So we sincerely thank them for all of their efforts. Well, this is outstanding work. I really enjoyed the article. And again, I would encourage anyone who's interested in kind of the history of P&O education and kind of what's coming in the future to read this article. So again, thank you for your efforts and very well done. Oh, and Dr. Kabar, just to, to echo that. So if anyone does have any questions about the article or if you're interested in getting involved with volunteering with NCOPE, please don't hesitate to reach out to Sue or Josh or myself and we, we would welcome the support as we really help to figure out the next steps to help this field grow. Definitely. As small as a profession as this is, there is room for individuals to make large impacts that can be felt for the next generation to come. Again, I that's something I find inspiring, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Wonderful. Hopefully, you'll hear from interested individuals who want to get involved in furthering this effort. We've come to the end of our podcast, so I'd like to thank Ms. Sachs and Dr. Ute for sharing their insights and discussing the research with us today. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on this project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of OHP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's ONP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for ONP professionals. OHP Clinical Insiders, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care, and ONP Rising, 
a podcast created for emerging professionals in our industry.